glorious song that is, He Will Hold Me Fast. Trust that's your prayer this morning. If you would, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And if you don't have a, a copy of God's Word with you, uh, you can go right in there in the back. One of our ushers, Mike Callahan, he has a stack of Bibles. If you want one and you don't have one, you can consider that a gift from us. Uh, Matthew is uh, the first book in the New Testament, the first gospel, and we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 34. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. While he, it's Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them and said, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Death is the great enemy. But it's an enemy that I think most of us try to ignore. I remember sharing the gospel with a friend of mine that I grew up with. And I asked her what she thought would happen when she dies. And this is what she said, I don't think about that. And you can kind of understand, you don't want to think about it either, do you? You don't want to think about death. 
And I, I think we just hope if we ignore it that somehow, maybe, we won't actually have to face it. We won't have to deal with it. Or perhaps it's just, hey, it's inevitable, why dwell on it? So I'm just going to live as if it's not a reality. And in our society of technological and medical advancement, this is easier to do than ever. You can ignore, or at least attempt, to ignore death. Because unlike previous generations, we don't have to confront death on a daily weekly basis. It's not a regular facet of our lives, at least for most of us. For instance, children are are more likely to survive childbirth and infancy than ever before. It's actually rare now that a child dies in infancy, at least here in America. We have cures for diseases that were fatal in generations past. And even when one is dying, when one has a terminal disease, we have anesthesia, we have hospice care now. And so the agonies of death in that process are are severely numbed. Now certainly, I'm thankful for all these things. I'm sure all of you are as well. Thankful for these medical advancements that, that help us not have to endure those things that many people have had to endure. But there is a downside to that reality. And the downside is this. We don't think about our own mortality. It's not something that we're confronted with, at least most of us, on a regular basis. And and consequently, we don't see our need for Christ. We don't see our need that He is the only hope that we have. And those who don't know Christ don't think about their need. We live in a modern-day Babylon, or Babel, if you're unfamiliar with those city names. Those are are, are great cities, if you will, in the Old Testament that represented the best of society, a society that could build a utopia, and they could do it without God. That's the society we live in. A society that believes that it can achieve complete justice, can offer happiness, and can give you life, and can do it all without Jesus, without God. But if we were to look closely, and I I think many of us do, if we were to look closely at our society, if, if, if you could figuratively lift the veil on this world, you could see that our society is actually built on injustice, isn't it? Sadness and death. If you just go to the right places, you'll see it. But if you want to ignore it, you can turn a blind eye. You can pretend it doesn't exist yet many don't want to see. Why don't they want to see? Because to see what's really occurring in the world would actually force us to come face the reality of our own mortality, our own helplessness, that even the best of medical advancements can't stop death. 
It only gives the illusion that it's slowing it down, right? But yet we know that who can add an hour to his life? Now, I'm not suggesting don't make use of these things. But it can be a mirage, a mirage that the kingdom of this world is your Savior. It can be a mirage with all its smoke and mirrors and the temptation for us, and certainly those who do not know Christ, is I'm going to bank, I'm going to put all my chips in the kingdom of man. Because it sure looks like it. it's offering me everything I want. Instead of trusting in the kingdom of God, which we're told can never be shaken. A kingdom which is coming. As Jim just read from Isaiah 35, where the deserts will blossom. So you'll only believe and put your trust in that kingdom if you believe that the king of that kingdom is able to deliver on his promises. Because that's where we are, right? We don't see that kingdom. And so we're, we're like, no, I'm cashing in on the kingdom I see. But if you'll just lift the veil, you know it's, it's, it's fool's gold. It's fool's gold. And the only way you're not going to trust that kingdom is if you trust the promises of the king. It's the only way. And so our passage actually invites you this morning. You need to be active this morning. Because there is a question that Jesus asks of you right now. And that question is found in verse 28. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe? And as you wrestle this morning, and I hope you will, wrestle with that question. Does he hold you fast? Is he your only hope? Is he? Are you clinging to this world? As you wrestle with that question, I want to draw out from our passage five characteristics of faith which believes that Jesus is able. What does such faith look like that truly banks on Jesus? We're going to see people who have no hope. None. They don't have what you have. What I have. They're helpless. And the reality is, so are you. So are you. You and I are helpless. We're just able to mask it better. And that mask keeps us from trusting. Keeps us from trusting. And so we're going to look at five characteristics which believes that Jesus is able to do this so that you will place your continued trust in him for eternal life. That's what I want for you today. I want us to be a trusting people. So as we look at these miracles, and there are several of them here, we begin by seeing there is an element of desperation here, right? And so that's the first characteristic of faith. Faith is desperate. 
Faith is desperate. And you see the desperation clearly expressed in this ruler who comes up to Jesus. Now, this ruler is probably uh, the leader of the local synagogue. He's a leader. And when he approaches Jesus, can you hear the desperation in his voice? My daughter has just died. My daughter's dead. He has had to come face to face with the reality of death. And death, in this case, has taken his precious little girl. I've got little girls. I've got little boys, too. But when I had little girls, my language started to change. My vocabulary started to change. I started using words like cute and precious and sweet and darling. New words that had never uttered my mouth. But the thought of one of my little girls dying be too much to bear. Too much to bear. Same with any of my little boys, but in this case, it's a little girl. And yet some of you have had to bury a child. Your little girl, maybe your little boy, or, or you've had to bear the loss of sibling, a parent, close friend, one you dearly love. And you know that feeling of despair that comes upon you because you know there's absolutely nothing you can do to change the circumstance. There's nothing. They're dead. Similarly, we see the desperation of a, of a woman who's, who's suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. You want to know more about that? Get your study Bible, okay? Whereas the little girl seemingly died in a moment, this woman has been dying inside for years. She's death walking. And so she's not buried, but because she's, she's ceremonially unclean, she's an outcast from society, she's like a leper. And Mark tells us she had gone to physician, to physician, to physician, and none of them could help her. Maybe that's you. Maybe there is disease, an illness, or maybe... You're now at the age that just the natural deterioration of life is taking its toll, and you know there's no reversing the clock. And what we see here is that true faith is not inward looking. It's not looking to yourself or looking to the promises of, the, of this world for relief. In their case, the world has nothing to offer. And all of us will come to that end at some point too. This world will fail you. And it failed them. And yet true faith, as we're going to see here, arises out of such desperation. It's a, an expression of the Beatitudes, a poverty of spirit, a mourning, and it, and it fixes one's eyes on Jesus as the only hope for the one who can defeat the grip of death, that grip that it holds us so tight. 
And so this leads us naturally to the second characteristic of faith. Faith is also confident. It's confident, and I love the confidence of this ruler of the synagogue when he comes up to Jesus. Look again in verse 18. He expresses his great despair in one moment and then his great confidence in the next. My daughter has just died. There's the despair. But I love this, but come. Can you see it? Can you hear it? My daughter has just died, but come. Come and lay your hand on her and she will what? She'll live. That's confidence right there. Jesus, all you have to do is come. And all you have to do is lay your hand on her and she will live. You'd think death would have been the end of it. Chances are this girl was sick. And there might have been hope while she's still breathing, but that that moment that they say, I'm sorry, sir, your, your daughter's dead. That would have been the end. But this passage tells us it's not. He has faith that Jesus is even able to rescue his daughter who has fallen into the pit of death. That he can go down there and get her. Again, consider the woman who's been suffering from discharge of blood for 12 years. She knows that if she could just Touch the the fringe, the hem, the the tassel of Jesus' garment. You you get this picture. She's like, if I could just graze it. If I could just touch it. I'd be well. I'd be saved. I'd be healed. Notice her confidence is in Jesus. He's her only hope, but he's a sure hope. If only, if just I could get to him. And Jesus acknowledges that faith. You see that in verse 21 or verse 22. He turned and seeing her, he says, just beautiful words, take heart, daughter. Don't you want to hear those words? Take heart, daughter. It's the same thing he said to the paralytic. He says, take heart, son. Take heart, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. And Matthew records for us that that she was instantly healed. And, And so we see that what no doctor could do for her was accomplished through Jesus. Death is literally erased as she comes in contact with him. Jesus' power over death is more vividly uh, illustrated in verses 23 through 26. This is now he's arrived at the ruler's house where the the young girl has apparently died. She has died. And the flute players and the professional mourners are there, you can see. In Israel, just so you know, uh, a body had to be buried within 24 hours because a dead body was ceremonially unclean, which is also remarkable that the, the man says, just come and touch her. They had to be buried within 24 hours, but also no matter uh, your economic status, you were required to hire professional flute players and mourners to come. I don't know if you've ever been in a third world country where you've maybe seen a a funeral. I've been in Haiti every single time I've been there. You see this. 
there are those playing music, and there are those carrying the casket, and there are mourners and wailers everywhere. This is a, a public thing. They're not masking death. They're grieving death. They're looking at it in its face. It's a daily reminder. As you would hear as you'd be walking in the streets, the mourning and the wailing. Here we silence it. The only thing that will be a reminder is if you get stopped when the, the, the parade goes, right? The parade of cars. But Jesus, when he arrives, he begins to tell everyone, go away, your services aren't needed today. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going to Scott's funeral home, walking in to the funeral and saying, hey, Scott, hey, hey Billy, um, your services aren't needed today because the person in the casket is merely asleep. Well, the same response would be that these people had. They laughed at Jesus. But we see that once everyone has gone away, Jesus takes the girl by his hand. He seizes her hand, and it's as if he just lifts her out of the grave. And she arose. Jesus reaches into the pit of death and rescues the girl. When one comes in contact with Jesus, even a dead person, it is merely as if they were asleep. This is the power of our Christ and our Lord, our Messiah. Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is able to rescue you from the grave? Is that what you're trusting him for? Because that's what he's coming to do, to raise the dead. And such faith and confidence in him for this is what Jesus is seeking. And this is emphasized in the encounter with the two blind men. Look at verse 28. He asked them that question that has been that I've posed to you. Do you believe that I am able to do this? In their case, it was to give them sight. And so he's asking you this question. And just, just a little bit of a, a, of a tip when you're reading your Bible, especially narratives, when you see questions by the characters in the story, you should be answering the same question. This is eliciting you. Do you believe that I'm able I think sometimes we just read our Bible, okay, he healed the blind man, move on. But you must slow down and listen because he's talking to you. He's talking. Do you believe that I am able? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And, and, and what's their answer? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. They confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe? Is that your response? Or is it, oh, I'm not sure. I don't know. My prayer is that you could say, yes, Lord. Because for everyone who approaches Jesus in this manner, this manner of faith, he raises us from the dead. He does. That's what happened to you if you've been converted. He has raised your dead heart. He has cleansed you of all your sin. He has given you new eyes to see. Actually, to see that this world is built on dead man's bones. And to see the glorious beauty of his kingdom. He's given you those sights, if you can see. 
And so before we met Christ, the Scripture says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were blinded by the ruler of this age. That we're like, as we'll come later to see in verses 32 and 33, like this deaf and mute man who's unable to hear God's word or confess Jesus because we're held captive by the evil one. That's the description of all people apart from Christ. But by faith, by putting our confidence in Jesus, he is able to rescue us from the threat of death, the sting of death. And when he returns, he'll actually lift our body out of the grave. He will raise us. And so, my friends, just think about this for a moment. Think about what this text is saying about who Jesus is. If Jesus is able to conquer death, which no man has been able to do, no technological advancement will ever do, is there any limit to what he is able to do? If he can conquer death. There isn't. The only question is, do you believe that he's able for this reason that we must have confidence in him, but our faith must also be marked by humility. Faith is humble. I want you to consider again the woman suffering from a discharge of blood. How, how might you characterize this woman as you look at her? How might you expect her demeanor to be? When I read this, I, I see meekness. Meekness. A true poverty in spirit. She knows She's unworthy of Jesus. That's why she maneuvers through the crowd. Do you see that in verse 20? Look at verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up. Where did she come up? She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. You get a picture that she, she's maneuvering through the crowd. To go unnoticed. She knows that she's unclean. She knows that she's an outcast of society. She knows that she is not worthy of Jesus' time. That's why she doesn't ask for it. She knows all these things, but she knows at the same time she has to get to Jesus. Because she's, he's her only hope. And so she says, if I could only touch the tassel, the fringe, the hem of his garment. Robes in those days, and likely of Jesus's, would have come down to almost the ground and had four tassels. Now just think about where the tassel is. And as Jesus is walking on those dirt roads, the tassel no doubt would have been dragging upon the ground. Would have been filthy. She says, that's where I can touch. Because I'm filthy too. There's just a humility about her. No demands. No telling of Jesus what he must do for her. The same thing could be said of the, of the ruler who, who, in verse 18, prostrates himself. Where does he prostrate himself? Upon the ground. He's on the dirt. 
or the blind men. They just cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. They're just crying and begging. Do you see the common denominator in all these individuals? They all see their desperate need for Jesus. And they express it through a humility of faith. They're humble. And so when we approach Jesus by faith, there's good news for all of us. And there was good news for these people. God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. We don't like to see ourselves like these individuals. We're above that. But yet that's the posture that Jesus requires. That's the posture. We are to come to him begging as beggars. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And so true faith, which believes that Jesus is able, it's marked by desperation, it's marked by confidence, it's marked by humility, but also by persistence. And we see this persistence in the two blind men. Jesus has raised the ruler's daughter from the dead. And now two blind men begin to follow him as he goes back home. And as they're following, you get the idea, they're continually crying out, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, son of David. Now notice something in verse 28. When does Jesus acknowledge them? When he entered the house. We don't know how long this rock was. But you get this picture that Jesus just keeps walking and they keep following. And they keep crying and they're begging and they're pleading, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. And Jesus keeps walking. And he doesn't speak to them until they come to him in the house. Why Why did Jesus do that? And just see here. Remember, they're blind. They've been following him. Most of us, that's too much work. Jesus, you're not worth it. Come on, I'm here. Did you not hear me? There's a persistence. Why do they keep going to him? Because he's their only hope. They don't expect. They plead. And you can just picture, they're probably bumping and and trying to hear at the same time as they're crying out. And they're trying to make sure, where is he? Where is he gone? Oh, I hear him. I hear his disciples. Let's go this way. And they are doing whatever they can to follow Jesus. What a beautiful picture. That's what faith looks like. It's persistent. They've got to get to Jesus, but it's not until they arrive at Jesus' house, his, his dwelling place. This is probably Peter's house, my guess. But it's interesting. Matthew just says, he entered the house, like you, like you know. But it's the house. Not just any house, the house, which is probably where Jesus is staying. Why did Jesus do this? 
There's probably several reasons. One, he doesn't want to draw attention in the square, and, and you can see that in all his admonitions. The report of this is going out. He even tells them not to tell anybody. But there's a more fundamental and important reason why. Jesus is drawing out their faith. Is it a genuine faith? Because if they truly believe that he is the one, if they truly believe that he is their only hope, they will do whatever it takes to get to him. See, there's something about it's more than just lips, lip service. They must follow him. They must follow him. And so we see a picture of faith being persistent, a faith which seeks Jesus, a faith that's crying out to him that enters where Jesus dwells. Now, ultimately, where does Jesus dwell? Heaven, and what a beautiful picture. Our physical bodies will not be restored until we enter his dwelling place. But yet there's, a, there's another sense here. Where does Christ dwell here on earth? He dwells in us. And maybe this morning you're here, maybe a friend brought you, but, but maybe you've been thinking, you've been crying out for mercy, you, you, you've not known where to turn, and yet you are here in the Lord's house. And now for the first time, you hear his voice. And he's asking you the same question he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to save you? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And you must say, yes, Lord. You must believe. And so the question now demands an answer. Do you believe? And that answer must result in a confession, if you will. And that leads us to our last characteristic, faith. Faith is expressive. Faith is expressive. And in the case of the blind men, what do they say? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. They recognize him as not only the son of David, who's the king, but he's their master. Yes, master. And they do so with their mouths. Think again of the ruler. He not only prostrates himself before Jesus, but what does he say? Come, and she will live. There's an expression of the faith. She's died, and he went and sought Jesus out, and he says, come, and she will live. Or, or the woman who says to her, if I can only touch, and then she seeks him out. In each case, their faith was outwardly expressed. There's one more account in this grouping of miracles, one that I haven't given much attention to, but... We see here in verses 32 through 34, a demon-oppressed man who is mute. He's probably also deaf. That's why he can't speak. And some of your, your Bibles might have a footnote about that. You see other encounters that muteness and deafness are kind of the same, same um, um, illness. And so Jesus comes. But notice this account's a little bit different, at least how Matthew presents it to us. We have all this detail. Each story actually gets shorter and shorter. That's why the first one is, is the main one, and then you get a second one, and now we get a third one. But 
As opposed to all these other ones, we don't actually hear what Jesus says to them. We just see what happens. He casts out the demon. Neither do we hear from the man delivered, where we heard from everybody else. But what do we see? Verse 33, the mute man spoke, but we don't know what he said. Instead, we hear from two other groups. The crowd and the Pharisees. They're the ones who are speaking. One group marveled, saying, we've never seen anything like this in Israel before. And they're, they're probably reflecting on the whole host of events that have occurred since chapter 9 in our story. But certainly, what we've just seen this morning is good enough. Whereas the other group is a group of grumblers. They, they are saying, he just does this by demonic powers. We're going to see this expanded later in chapter 12. One group believes, one group rejects. It's as if Jesus, or Matthew is forcing us right now as we hear this story to fill in the, the answer. Which group are you in? Are you among those who marvel and believe, or are you among those who grumble and reject? Who chuck it up to some other thing. No, 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 it couldn't be. This couldn't be true of this man. He's just doing other things. And really, Matthew has done this throughout the passage. I mean, if you just look at the responses of all the people, there's actually prayers. I mean, the, the rulers come and she will live is the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come. We're seeing examples of faith here. Have mercy on us. Do you pray that? Are you constantly going to the throne of grace and, and praying because it feels like you're a blind man walking through trying to follow Jesus on the way home? This is what it looks like when you believe Jesus is able. See, when one encounters Jesus, true faith is expressive. Because it has to get to Jesus. You need to come to me and i got to come to you. And it cannot help but marvel and wonder at His saving power and amazing grace, those who truly see. And so today, if you hear His voice this morning, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your heart like the Pharisees, but rather come to Him by faith. A desperate faith. A confident faith. A humble faith faith, a persistent faith, and an expressive faith. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus like this, and the Spirit of God is working in you and you are under great conviction that you, you really have never come to know Jesus, or maybe this is the first time you've heard of Jesus and you believe, well, you must express that faith. And and at the end of the service, I'm going to be standing out in that lobby, and, and here's how you need to express that. Come tell me. Come tell someone. No faith is just a private faith. Faith is always a public faith. Yes, it's yours, but it must be public. Because Jesus is going to ask you to come forth and profess him before men through the waters of baptism, and we want to tell you how you do that. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart or think I'll do that tomorrow. 
for today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are unworthy. We, we, are, we are like the woman. We are unclean. We are hopeless. We don't even deserve your, your mercy, your time. And yet we come to you. And we find that that you're abundantly full of grace and mercy to sinners like us. That you willingly give us your time. And you speak to us through your word and, and you promise to, to make us clean, to make us whole, that you will give sight to the blind. You, you will raise our dead bodies from the grave. Oh, Father, may we trust Jesus. Grant us a faith that persists, a faith that endures. And Jesus, lead us home. Take us home where we'll see you face to face, where we'll see and feel the rest that is yours, and that we will dwell with you forever and ever. Amen.